Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this series, God and Art, we are going to be exploring God from the perspective of all different kinds of artistic medium. We will be talking about God from the perspective of painting, sculpture, architecture, literature, poetry, film, and photography. My hope is that through these mediums, we will come to a deeper understanding of how God is present in our everyday lives. Enjoy. Our second scripture reading today is a continuation of Jesus' temptation out in the wilderness. And it continues, Jesus said to the devil, again it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the word of the Lord. So as you all know, we are doing a sermon series entitled God and Art, right? And for the last two weeks, we have been getting into this concept of finding God in all kinds of different artistic medium. The first week, we talked about God in the caves. We discussed this idea of how the oldest cave paintings in the world, found in the Chauvy Cave in France. They're 32,000 years old. They're beautiful, beautiful paintings. And then last week, we talked about God and the precision. We compared Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian Man with Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night. And today, we are talking about God in the quiet. And there's probably no better artist to represent this topic than the Renaissance painter, Fra Angelico. Now, Fra Angelico, he was part of an order known as the Dominican Friars. Has anybody in here ever heard of Dominican Friars before? Okay, Dominican Friars, they were founded by a Spanish priest, St. Dominic de Guzman, and the whole purpose of this order was to go out to regular average folks and to preach to them about the gospel, about Christianity, because at the, the time that it was founded, If you had the wrong beliefs, that could actually get you killed. So they wanted to make sure that everybody understood the difference between orthodox, right-thinking Christianity, and heresy, or wrong-thinking Christianity. And so the Dominicans, they focused a lot on knowledge, learning, and wisdom. When I was at Oxford University, I studied under Dominican friars, and it's a big reason why I try to bring so much teaching in to my sermons. Well, Fra Angelico, he was originally a manuscript illuminator. Now, do you all know what that is? You've probably heard about that before. So, basically what happens is, after some poor schmuck has sat there and written the entire Bible by hand, all the way out, they hand it over to Fra Angelico, and then he takes it and he adds all these little accents to it to make it beautiful. He adds borders and initials and illustrations. That's just one initial that he did right there. It's amazing the amount of time that it would take. But what he was very well known for were his frescoes. Now, fresco is basically when you take watercolor and you combine it with plaster and you put it on walls or on ceilings. We could do that in here and we could make it really nice if we had somebody who could get up there and do it, right? It's beautiful. And the cool thing about frescoes is that when the paint actually combines with the plaster, it chemically does so, so that it basically stays fresh forever. If you've ever seen really old frescoes, it's like they were painted yesterday. 
They're just these beautiful, beautiful things. And what he was known for was actually painting the Friary of San Marco down in, uh, down in Florence. And so he goes into this building and he paints these beautiful frescoes all over it. He even paints in the individual prayer cells inside of it. And he wanted the monks to be able to use his frescoes as a point of contemplation in their prayers. Well, today we are going to be talking about a painting that he did. It's not a fresco. It's an individual piece. It's called The Penitent Saint Jerome. This is the piece we're going to be looking at. And this piece is actually at the Princeton University Art Museum. I would like to tell you that I was so cultured that I just went and found it, but that's not true. My wife, who is far more cultured than I am, went to this when we were there And it's free. If you ever get a chance to visit Princeton, they have this magnificent museum there with really wonderful art. And so she introduced me to this painting. Now, before I can start breaking down this painting, because there's all these little details in it which are really neat to look at, I need to tell you about who this guy, St. Jerome, is. Because if you don't understand who he is, you can't really understand what the painting's all about. So, St. Jerome, he was born in 347 A.D. And he was born into a wealthy family. And like many people who were born into wealthy families at that time, he studied rhetoric and philosophy. And in doing so, he kind of distanced himself. He was very skeptical of Christianity. But eventually he converted over, and he wasn't really all that strong of a Christian, to be perfectly honest with you. He just decided, yeah, this is something I'm going to do. Then he takes a trip with two of his friends to Antioch. He's taking a vacation there in 373, and all of a sudden they get sick, all of them. In fact, his two friends get so sick that they die. And he is there in his bed, and he has this vision of God, and he realizes at that point that he wants to dedicate his life to God. So after he gets through this sickness, he comes out of bed, and he decides he's going to live what's known as an ascetic lifestyle. Now, have you ever heard of that before, an ascetic lifestyle? It's basically where you deprive yourself of all these worldly pleasures. So you deprive yourself of food, of sex, of material possessions. And in doing so, it's supposed to bring you to this higher level of spiritual awareness. So where did he get this idea from? Well, he gets the idea from Jesus, because that's what he did in the scripture that we're reading today. The idea is is that you can attain this spiritual enlightenment by going out and being by yourself. And so he goes into the desert in order to be tempted by the devil. This is a very common archetype that we find in mythology, where the hero goes out, undergoes a series of tests, and then, after surviving these tests, begins his mission to go out into the world. And at this time, the ancients, they believed that evil forces resided all in the desert and in the wilderness in these places. Who here goes camping? Camping, like it, not so much, right? Material comforts are nice, right? So, if you've ever been camping, you know that when you go out, you're totally displaced. You're in a completely different kind of environment. And for children especially, being out there, it can be scary if they're not used to it. And so this idea that there's evil forces out there, I think you can understand how people would feel that way. But what does it tell us? After 40 days in the desert, he emerges and he has defeated the forces of evil and he's ready to begin his ministry. And so, St. Jerome, he wants to do the same thing. He follows in Jesus' footsteps. He goes into the desert of Chalcis, and there he undergoes a life of deprivation so that he can find true communion with God. So Fra Angelico, in his painting of St. Jerome, 
He's trying to show St. Jerome when he hits this moment of enlightenment in the desert. So you notice, what is he wearing? He's wearing what a hermit would wear out in the desert. And if you look closely, he has this rock that he's holding in his right hand that he's beating against his chest. Of course, you want to make your time out there as horrible as possible, so that's a good way to do it, right? And then you see that in his left hand, he's holding a piece of papyrus, and this has Latin script written on it. And the reason why is because he was actually the original translator of the Latin version of the Bible known as the Vulgate. But then if you look at the bottom, you can see that he's got all these little critter friends who he uh, enjoys spending time with. You can see that he, uh, he has a lion there. The lion is actually, he actually recently removed a thorn. I know it's hard to see in that photo, but he, he recently removed a thorn from the lion's foot. And then he's got all these other little things like scorpions and snakes and a lizard and a tortoise over there. And those are all his little friends in the desert because he's not really alone. He's with them out there, right? And then you see that there's a hat and two shields on the side. Now, we don't entirely know what that's all about, but it is speculated that the reason why those two things are there is because Fra Angelico was making this painting in commemoration of a wedding. But the point I want you to pay attention to in this is actually St. Jerome's gaze towards heaven. So you have probably seen gazes like this before, right? But this is actually the first painting to ever utilize this particular gaze, which Renaissance painters would then copy over and over again throughout the rest of the Renaissance. And the reason why he portrays him this way is because of who St. Jerome was. You see, in St. Jerome's writings, he talks about this idea that if you can wean yourself off of material comforts, that you will eventually have this shift in your perspective on life. And remember, this guy, St. Jerome, he was very wealthy, right? So when he started to live very simply, all of a sudden he realized that much of what he was striving for in terms of worldly success was a waste of his time. So he put it this way. He said, the world around you is a constant reminder of what you don't have. So if you look at the people around you, you see what they have and you want it for yourself, right? So you have a nice car, I want a nice car. You have a nice house, I want a nice house. This is the way we are as humans. It's natural for us to envy what other people have. And Jerome believed that envy was at the root of our separation from God. And so he says that the reason why we envy other people is because of where we set our gaze. So if you're looking around at what other people have, then there's going to be this voice in the back of your head that's constantly sitting there telling you, if I don't have what they have, then my life will be incomplete. So the way you get rid of this voice is by shifting your gaze. So where is he looking in this painting? Up towards... Uh, there we go. Okay, you got there. All right. So he's looking towards heaven. And in looking towards heaven, right, the whole idea is, is that he's trying to shift his perspective. He's not worried about what's down here. He's worried about what's up in heaven, and he's worried about God, what, what God wants him to worry about. Now, this is not meant to be taken literally, okay? He's not saying that you need to walk around looking at the sky or up, as many of you said, right? What he's saying is you need to change your perspective to look at the world through Jesus' eyes. It's a metaphor, And the way that you achieve this shift is that you need to do what Jesus did. You need to take time to steal away to these places in the wilderness 
where you can be by yourself in solitude. But here's the thing. Are you all going to do that after this sermon? Are you guys going to go out and quit your jobs and go live in a desert or out in the woods? I mean, how many people plan to do that? Anybody? Oh, we got, okay, awesome. We got one. One. That's good. Okay. So the idea is, I know that for most of us, right, that's not going to happen. So we need to look at it from our perspective, which is that we're not going to be doing that. How do we achieve this shift in perspective in our lives today? And what it really comes down to is, you all have to be willing to embrace the quiet in your life. I need to embrace it. You need to embrace it. We have to be willing to make this a part of our lives. So even if you walk away from here today, and you say, yes, this is something I want to do, there's all these problems in our lives that prevent us from doing this. And you all know what I'm talking about, right? There is so much stimulation in the world around us. Let's say that you can even get disconnected from the tech stuff, right? You know, the computer, the cell phone, the internet, the TV, the radio, the music, all this stuff that is just constantly locked into our brains. Let's say you can disconnect from that. Even then, there's not a lot of possibility for us to be alone because in our society today we have become more and more skeptical of solitude because people who spend a lot of time alone are perceived as having something wrong with them. And you all know what I'm talking about, right? Just look in the media. Who are the people who are portrayed as spending significant amounts of time alone? They're usually like mass murderers, right? Think of Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, for those of you who might remember that. And if you need something a little more recent, how about Adam Lanza? who went out and committed the atrocities at Sandy Hook Elementary. Both of these people were portrayed as spending lots of time by themselves. Or look at the prison system. When somebody is unable to maintain a presence in the normal prison population, what do they send them to? Solitary confinement. It's a punishment, isn't it? And we know today that solitary confinement is actually one of the worst forms of incarceration, because if you spend enough time by yourself alone in those solitary confinement cells, what happens to you? You go crazy. And so over time, particularly in the last century, we have become more and more skeptical as a society of spending time by ourselves. And you know where you can trace this back to, where this all began? is actually with a man named Dale Carnegie. Some of you know who he is. Okay. So Dale Carnegie, he was the son of a pig farmer, and he was expected to do what his father did, right, which is to farm pigs. But he wanted a better life for himself, and so he begged his parents to rearrange their lives so that he could go to college. So he gets to college, and when he gets there, he realizes that all the people who garner the most respect in college are these guys who win speaking competitions. He sees that leadership is very much connected to how well you can speak in public. But he's got this problem, Dale. He is totally fearful of public speaking. And he doesn't really know how to overcome it. And so he works at it and he works at it. And eventually he leaves school. He goes to New York City. And he goes up to the 125th Street YMCA. And while he's there, he says, I would like to teach a class on public speaking. And the directors of the YMCA said, well, you can do that, but nobody's going to come out to it. And he says, well, can I try it? Sure. And it becomes the most popular class in the entire city. Like thousands of people are coming to see this guy, 
which results in him writing a book called Public Speaking and Influencing Men in Business, which he then converts over eventually into this, How to Win Friends and Influence People. How many of you have heard of this book before? Okay, this book totally transformed the way Americans think about leadership. So prior to the 20th century, in the 1800s, if you were going to be a leader, what mattered most were your virtues and your wisdom. What they cared about was how you spent your time in private, actually, far more than how you conducted yourself in public. But today, the exact opposite is true, is it not? You cannot be considered a good leader unless you are able to speak well in public spaces. In fact, the size of your personality matters way more than the amount of knowledge you have in your head. So all of a sudden, thanks to Dale Carnegie, being quiet and smart was seen as a negative. So if you want to be a leader, you now have to be a crowd pleaser. Now, who are the people who naturally thrive with this kind of interaction? They are known as extroverts. Very good, very good. So extroverts. An extrovert is someone who gains energy by being around other people, by being in the world around. So if you're an extrovert, that means you like being in public spaces where lots of things are going on. You like to talk to people. You like to be around all kinds of energy and interaction. What's the opposite of an extrovert? Introvert. So an introvert likes to spend time by themselves. They enjoy contemplating the world around them and spending time in their own mind. Over the last century, extroverted traits have come to be seen as being much more important than introverted traits. In fact, introversion has come to be seen as a sign of weakness in our society. And yet, it is introverts who have made some of the most important contributions to human progress. Let me give you a couple examples. So Isaac Newton, he was a man who was highly introverted, and he's responsible for doing what? He brought us the math of calculus and physics. And had he not done that, just about all the technology that we use today would not be possible. Calculus is the math of life. And you know what? When he produced it, he didn't want to publish it. A friend had to go to him and beg him to write this stuff down. And you want to know why he didn't want to write it down? Because he'd have to answer questions about how it worked when people came to talk to him. Because he's like, not everybody's going to understand this, and I don't want to have to field questions about it. Another example is Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was a man who spent great amounts of time by himself contemplating his actions and how to maneuver the country. And indeed, I think he is considered perhaps one of the best presidents, if not the best president, due to his speeches. His speeches still have so much resonance today because he spent so much time contemplating every single word in the speech. Or how about Eleanor Roosevelt? Eleanor Roosevelt, who dedicated her life to the cause of civil rights for women and minorities, she was very, very introverted. She spent, she preferred to spend time by herself, but because of her place, because she was the president's wife, she actually went out and felt that this cause was worth her time. And then, let's take one last one, my favorite, Dr. Seuss. So Dr. Seuss, he created some of the most wild children's characters out there, right? And yet he was always so afraid to meet all of his little adoring fans because 
he thought that they would not like him due to the fact that he was so reserved and quiet, unlike the characters that are in his book. And the list goes on. You can look at Albert Einstein, Bill Gates, Rosa Parks, J.K. Rowling. Even Jesus was probably an introvert because, you know, he's always trying to get away from the crowds. Like, people are like, where'd Jesus go? And he's like, gone, somewhere off by himself, right? All these people have made significant contributions to human history. Now, the point of me standing up here telling you this is not to say extroverts are horrible people and introverts are wonderful. I'm not trying to sit there and say that. What I am trying to say is that we as a society, you have to realize that in order to have these profound breakthroughs in thought, you need to be willing to spend time alone by yourself in contemplation. You cannot have these breakthroughs unless you are willing to be in solitude. But today, in our society, introversion is now being seen as abnormal. Let me give you some examples. Let's just take the classroom, for instance, the way children are being taught these days. So now, today, in our world, everything is done in school as group work. So you have group projects. You have group homework. You have group reading, which I don't even know how that's possible to group read a book, but you can do that. So you have all these different things that people are doing as groups. This in spite of a growing mountain of evidence that group learning is not nearly as effective as individual learning. Or how about in the workplace? They're getting rid of all the offices and workplaces to have these open workspaces, right? And they don't even have cubicles. It's just desks where everybody can see each other, what they're doing, what they're saying, It's an extrovert's dream and an introvert's nightmare, right? Being in a workplace like that. And the problem is that, of course, if you're in an environment like that, it's hard to come up with these really important ideas that are going to change your business. One of the theories that has been put out there as to why Americans are lagging so far behind in terms of innovation is because we are becoming less and less comfortable with spending time by ourselves. And the net effect of all this is that we're spending huge amounts of time doing lots of things with each other, and yet we're not really going anywhere. Just because you're working all the time, and you're with people, and you're putting out things doesn't mean necessarily that you're making progress. And so I know it might seem like a simple thing, but when you spend time by yourself, in silence, in solitude, in quiet, it can totally change the way that you see the world, and it can improve your walk with God. And I found this out at one point in my life when I was forced into a situation where I had to be in solitude for a long period of time. So if you haven't guessed from the way I've preached this sermon, I am an introvert, and I actually do enjoy spending time by myself. I like one-on-ones, but being in large groups, that's hard for me. And from the time I was a young kid, I used to spend hours by myself playing with my toys. Until, as I got a little bit older, I found out that that was supposedly not a good thing. My mom would yell at me and say, why are you in here all by yourself? Stop being a loner. Go out and play with somebody. That's what was a constant thing I heard from my mom, right? So I got it inside of my head eventually that being by myself was a bad thing. So if I wasn't doing something, if I wasn't working on homework or swimming or with a friend or just doing something that I was wasting my time, as opposed to doing what I really loved to do, which was sit there 
deep in thought inside of my head. My teachers were no different, by the way. If I wasn't there doing something, I was wasting my time, even though I was thinking about things. Now, all of this changed for me when I went abroad for my junior year and I went to Oxford University. And I'm sorry that I keep talking about this. I don't want you all to think that I'm bragging about the fact that I went over there. Like, this was just a really important year of my life. And so I apologize that I keep coming back to it. I'm not like, well, I'm so much better than you because I went to Oxford. It's not like that, okay? I just want you to know like, that for me, this was a really challenging year of my life, but it totally transformed me. So at Oxford, when you go there, I did not know this at the time, that there are no such thing as roommates at Oxford. Everybody has individual rooms. It's the way it's been there for hundreds of years. And so I go over there, and I'm this student from America, and of course, you bring what you have, your clothes. And I come into the room, and what I have is my clothes, the furniture they put in the room, and that's it. Because I'm introverted, it's not like I have lots of friends that I've made all of a sudden, right? So I'm by myself. And every day, I'm going to classes with these Dominican friars, who I figure out are living a lot like I am right now. And I see them, and they're happy, they're content, and they have so little. I remember one guy showed me this closet in his office, which was not even as big as this stage. I mean, it's probably like this big. And inside of that was a bed and a little shelf. And that's, he goes, this is where I live, is in here. And this is all the stuff I own. And you could put it inside of a box. Like, it was not that much stuff. And I found this to be really intriguing, that this guy was so happy, so content, had so little... And I kept thinking about it. I thought, well, I wonder how he could be this way because I'm really sad. I'm alone. I'm by myself all the time. But each day I'm going back to my room and I'm getting more used to this idea of being by myself. And at about three months out of going through this, something inside of me just like clicked. And the best way I can describe it to you is I want you to think about how you feel about Christianity, many of you. I remember sitting where you are sitting, listening to people like me, And it was so disparate. Like, I'd hear stories and different things, and it was just kind of all this nebulous stuff floating out there, and it was really hard for me to put it together into something that made sense. And for some reason, even though I was studying it, it didn't make sense to me, but sitting in silence one day, it just clicked, this whole Christianity thing, and this God that felt so far away from me for so long, all of a sudden, it made sense in the Christian context. And it opened up this flood, not only of understanding, but of creativity. And it's one of the reasons why I feel like I can do this job is because of that year that I spent in silence. Now, I'm not particularly special. I'm no different than you are. But the difference is, I had this time by myself, and it transformed the way that I looked at the world. And so, you can have the same thing. It's not impossible. But you have to be willing to embrace quiet in your life. And so that is my prayer for you today, that you might embrace the quiet in your life. I hope you will look to the example of Jesus and St. Jerome and steal away to those quiet places so that you can find those deep connections with God. But most importantly, I hope that you will turn your gaze. Stop looking at the world around you and desiring what other people have, but rather look towards heaven. Because when you do that, what you will come to find is this deep spiritual connection with God that you never knew you had. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions,
and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.